say you want to change the human body. You want to fix a mistake. You want to repair something, improve something. Well, if you're going to reprogram human genetic material, you need a delivery system, and nothing works better than virus. It's like a suitcase. You, 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 you pack in genetic mutation, infect the body, and the vector unloads into the target cells. Getting it where you want it, how you want it, is the nightmare, unless you have a map. There was this terrible accident at Fort Detrick in 1985. Five researchers dropped dead in the lab, and it was, it was such a catastrophe that they brought in Dan Hillcott from Stanford to assess the damage. And he, he got in there, and he realized that underneath it all was this incredible breakthrough in viral receptor mapping. He had a map. You've had some very minor alterations made to two different chromosomes. The green side, the physical side, is nothing more than a one and a half percent rise in your mitochondrial protein uptake. But with one and a half percent, you see this immediate increase in cellular tempo, muscle efficiency, oxygenation. And the blue side? Intelligence, obviously, but it's more than that. It's neural regeneration and elasticity, sensory function, pain suppression. It's the most exciting development in genomic targeting in the history of the science. The MK Ultrans. Following the release of the Rockefeller Report, John D. Marks, author and former staff assistant to the State Department Intelligence Director, filed a Freedom of Information Act appeal on behalf of the Center for National Security Studies, requesting documentation from the CIA. I filed an identical request about the same time. Marx and I both requested documentation for the evidence cited in the Rockefeller Report on the CIA's mind control activities conducted within the United States. Several months later, Marx was given more than 2,000 pages of top secret and eyes-only documents by the CIA's Information Review Committee. A short time later, I began to receive what Marx had gotten. These pages were said to be the bulk of the information upon which the Rockefeller Commission had based its report. Exempted from the released were portions or entire document which contained information set by CIA officials to pertain to intelligence sources and methods which the Director of the Central Intelligence has the responsibility to protect from unauthorized disclosure pursuant to Section 102D3 of the National Security Act of 1947. But in the photocopied pages obtained was a statement to the fact that within a few hours of his resignation was forced by the disclosures of the Watergate and Church Committees. CIA Director Richard Helms ordered the records shredded and burned. The remaining documents, which were judged by the CIA to be safe to keep for subsequent release, were all highly sanitized. They contained few names of participating individuals, organizations, and none of the details of the long-range experiments designed to mold and control the minds of American citizens. In addition to offering a superficial review of the CIA's involvement in research on mind control, the documents Marx obtained gave the agency's own officially censored version of what had happened to F Dr. Frank Olson. According to the CIA at a liaison conference with Fort Detrick personnel at 
Deep Creek Lake, Maryland on November 18th and 19th, 1953. Dr. Olson and seven other men were given LSD and glasses and Cointreau and orange flavored liquor. The unsuspecting guinea pigs were told 20 minutes later that they had been given LSD. Olson suffered serious after effects and later the same day he was sent at CIA expense to New York with an escort, Dr. Robert Lashbrook. There he was taken to see a psychiatrist, Dr. Harold Abramson. After five days of observation and treatment, Dr. Abramson decided that Olson had to be hospitalized. Arrangements were made for his admittance to a private sanitarium near Rockville, Maryland. Following that consultation with Abramson on November 22, Olson and Lashbrook returned to their rooms at the Sattler Hotel and retired for the evening. At 2.30 a.m. the next morning, Lashbrook was wakened by a loud crash. According to the eyes-only investigation report, he went into Olson's bedroom and found him missing. The window, glass, and all, and the blinds were also missing. Lashbrook assumed that Olson had dived through them. But before Lashbrook notified the hotels, he called Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, the chief medical officer of the CIA drug project, and informed him of Olson's fate. Lashbrook then called the desk man who called the police. When the police from the 14th Precinct arrived, Lashbrook told them that Olson was employed by the U.S. Army. He also told them that Two was a government employee and a friend of Olson's, but nothing else. Police, however, found Lashbrook in possession of government identification, including a CIA badge, and made note of his identifying data. The CIA and the Department of Defense quickly took over the liaison with the police and succeeded in covering up the cause of Olson's so-called suicide. Three months later, CIA Director Alan Dulles wrote three notes to reprimand and sent them to the chiefs of the Technical Services Staff, Technical Operations, and Chemical Division. The eyes-only reprimand to the chief of the chemical division said, I have personally reviewed the files from your office concerning the use of drugs on unwitting groups of individuals. In recommending the unwitting application of the drug to your superior, you apparently did not give sufficient emphasis to the necessity for medical corroboration and for proper consideration of the rights of the individual to whom it was being administered. This is to inform you that it is my opinion that you exercised poor judgment in this case. It was signed, Sincerely, Alan W. Dulles, Director. In 1975, President Gerald Ford apologized to the Olson family on behalf of the government and made a monetary settlement. The Olson case was also the subject of investigations by Congress and a government appointed commission, which found that there was no evidence of homicide. There was no change of operations. The research on mind control continued unabated. The cover-up continued. The official story was Olson fell, but the family of Frank Olson always suspected that he had pushed because he had become a security risk. According to his son, Eric Olson, the normally cheerful researcher, sank into deep depression after the CIA slipped him acid in his drink. He told his wife he had made a terrible mistake and wanted to quit his job. Nine days later, he was dead. Eric Olson is now a psychologist who has access to a number of other people working within the cryptocracy. In 1994, Eric and his brother Niles had the 40-year-old remains of their father exhumed. The body was found in a mummified condition. The CIA said that it had no reason to think that Olson's death was a homicide. 
but the Suns had the body sent to the nation's top forensic pathologist who tried to determine if Frank Olson was dead before he hit the ground in New York City pavements. It's been a pressing question for all me the entire time, and the question certainly will not be laid to rest with the CIA story at 1975, Eric said. The remains are in exceedingly fine condition, and that's attributable to the bombing done in New York and to the container, said James E. Stars, professor of law and forensic science at George Washington University. We have remains that are unmummified condition. We have the opportunity to get fingerprints. Forensic experts analyzed hair, brain tissue, fingernails, and bones for injuries not attainable to the fall, Star said. They looked for toxins and drugs, including LSD and other hallucinogens. The chairman of the Behavioral Science Department at York College, Dr. John Levinsky, examined the skeleton. Stars found new forensic evidence which suggested that Olson may have landed on his feet, shattering both legs and causing massive internal trauma that would have led to death in minutes. But, curiously, Stars found so many fractures in the skull that it was not possible that he received this type of injury simply by falling out of a window. It would not be possible unless he were on a trampoline. You don't bounce around like that. When you hit the pavement, you hit the pavement. Stars also found no evidence of cuts from smashing through the glass window, which had been reported in the original autopsy. Stars characterized the new evidence as sinister, but decided, as of September 1994, to hold off his concluding remarks pending toxicological results and a final inquiry. After toxicological results were completed in November, Stars said, I am exceedingly skeptical of the view that Dr. Olson went through that window on his own. The CIA issue, a hasty statement saying that it will cooperate fully if the case is reopened, saying that if the private investigation has uncovered new evidence, it should be brought to the attention of the authorities. Stars singled out the presence of several bruises on Olson's skull that suggested that he may have been smashed on the head before he plunged 173 feet at 65 miles per hour to his death on the sidewalk below. The criminal and dishonorable ways of the CIA again surface. Despite congressional hearings, despite exposure in the press, despite presidential apologies, Operation Mind Control continued. According to the documents, the CIA Mind Control Program was rendered under four different project names. In 1949, the Office of Scientific Intelligence undertook the analysis of foreign work on certain unconventional warfare techniques, including behavioral drugs, with an initial objective of developing a capacity and capability to resist or offset the effect of such drugs. Preliminary phases, including the review of drug-related work at institutions such as Mount Sinai Hospital, Boston Psychiatric Hospital, University of Minnesota, Valley Forge General Hospital, and Detroit Psychiatric Clinic, the Mayo Clinic, and the National Institute of Health. The first project, codenamed Project Bluebird, was assigned the function of discovering means of conditioning personnel to prevent unauthorized extraction of information from the known means. It was further assigned to investigate the possibility of control of an individual by application of special interrogation techniques, memory enhancement, and establishing defensive means for preventing interrogation of agency personnel. A number of the survivors of Operation Mind Control have been tattooed with bluebirds. Several think that this was a mark of a rank, that it meant that they received special bluebird programming and could be accessed with certain triggers. 
This has not yet been sufficiently tested to my knowledge. In August 1951, Project Bluebird renamed Project Artichoke and was subsequently transferred from the Office of Scientific Intelligence to the Office of Security, OSI. However, retained the responsibility for evaluating foreign intelligence aspects of artichoke. In 1953, the OSI proposed the experiments to be undertaken to test LSD on agency volunteers. Records do not indicate, however, whether or not such experiments were made. According to the information released, OSI's involvement in Project Artichoke ceased in 1956. The emphasis originally given to Artichoke by the OS became focused on the use of drugs such as sodium pentothal in connection with interrogation techniques and with the polygraph. During this period, there was an informal group known as the Artichoke Committee, which had representatives from OSI, OS, medical services, and technical services. True to form, only brief records were kept, so that the details of the exchanges of this committee are still secret. A CIA memo to the Director of Central Intelligence dated July 14, 1952, cited a successful application of narco-hypnotic interrogation undertaken by a team of representatives from the CIA. This memo revealed that by the date two successful interrogations had already been conducted using drugs and hypnosis. The subject were Soviet agents suspected of being double agents. The cover was called psychiatric medical that they admitted them to the hospital. The control method used were narcosis, hypnosis, and by combination of both. The subjects were regressed by hypnosis and made to relive past experiences. When the interrogation was completed, post-hypnotic suggestions succeeded in giving the subjects amnesia of the actual interrogations. The interrogations were regarded by the CIA as being very successful. In each case, the CIA memo read, a psychiatric medical cover was used to bring the artichoke techniques into action. In the first case, light dosages of drugs coupled with hypnosis were used to induce a complete hypnotic trance. This trance was held for approximately one hour and 40 minutes of interrogation, with a subsequent total amnesia produced by post-hypnotic suggestion. In the second case, an individual of much higher intelligence than the first, a deep hypnotic trance was reached after light medication. This was followed by an interrogation lasting well over an hour. However, a partial amnesia was obtained at that time, although a total amnesia was obtained for a major part of the test. Since further interrogation was desired, a second test was made on the individual on whom artichoke technique of using straight medication was employed. On this test, highly successful results were obtained and that a full interrogation lasting 2 hours and 15 minutes was produced, part of which included a remarkable regression during this regression. The subject actually relived certain past activities of his life, some dating back 15 years while a while. In addition, the subject totally accepted Mr. Blank as the case officer and interpreter at this time as an old, trusted, and beloved personal friend whom the subject had known in years past in Georgia and USSR. Total amnesia was apparently achieved for the entire second test on this case. The memo revealed that sodium pentothal and the stimulant dizoxin were the drugs used to aid the hypnotic trance. The memo continued, 
for a matter of record, the case officers involved in both cases expressed themselves to the effect that artichoke operations were entirely successful, and team members felt that these tests demonstrated conclusively the effectiveness of the combined chemical hypnotic technique in such cases. In both cases, the subjects talked clearly at great length and furnished information with the case officers considered extremely valuable. According to the Agency Inspector General Chamberlain, there is a reference in papers in the records held by the Office of Security of something referred to as an artichoke team traveling overseas in 1954 with indications of operational applications to individuals representing a communist bloc country. There is no record of the operation or its results. A summary of a conference on July 15, 1953 offered a clue to the other kinds of operations conducted under artichoke. The report, addressed to the Chief of Security, CIA, said, Mr. Blank then discussed the situation of a former agency official who had become a chronic alcoholic and who at the present time was undergoing operative treatment in a blank for a possible brain tumor. This individual had called the agency prior to the operation and warned that was given certain types of anesthetics sodium pentothal. Previously, he had been known to talk coherently. The matter was taken care of by placing a representative in the operating room and by ringing the various personnel participating in the operation under the secrecy agreement. Mr. Blank stated that the subject did not talk extensively under the influence of sodium pentothal and revealed internal problems of the agency. Dr. Blank added that he was acquainted with the details in the case. Mr. Blank then commented that this type of thing had been a source of great concern to himself and others in the operations work and stated that he hoped that artichoke efforts to produce some method that would perhaps guarantee amnesia on the part of those knowing of agency operations and vital spots would be successful. He stated that some individuals in the agency had to know tremendous amounts of information and if any way could be found to produce amnesia for this type of information, for instance, after the individual had left the agency, it would be a remarkable thing. Mr. Blank stated the need for amnesia was particularly great in operations work. Mr. Blank and Mr. Blank both explained that work was continually being done in an effort to produce controlled amnesia by various means. Mr. Blank called attention to the fact that at the preceding conference, Colonel Blank had advanced the idea of testing new methods, new chemicals, and new techniques, and combinations thereof, on certain carefully selected employees of the agency, probably individuals in training groups. One of the documents John Marks obtained was dated July 30, 1956, under the heading, Schizophrenic Agent. The memo stated that bulkapine, an alkaloid, could cause catatonia or stupor from its effects on the central nervous system and the cerebral cortex. The report stated, We desire to have certain psychochemical properties tested on man using the bulkapine, which was fortunate enough to obtain the sample being unleashed herewith. More bulkapine is available if needed along with the sample with the request that the subjects be tested for loss of speech, loss of sensitivity to pain, loss of memory, and loss of willpower. 
Another memo in 1956 authorized psychiatrists in universities and state penitentiaries, the names were deleted, to test these drugs on unwitting subjects. An even earlier memo said it was essential to find an area where large numbers of bodies would be used for research and experimentation. Dr. Blank stated that in connection with the testing of drugs, he was quite certain a number of psychiatrists all over the United States would be willing to test new drugs, especially drugs that affect the mind. Project Artichoke evolved in, in to become Project MKUltra, which, according to CIA documents, was an umbrella project for funding sensitive projects, approved by Alan Dulce on April 3, 1953. Cryptonym Delta covered policy and procedure for use of biochemicals in clandestine operations. Besides drugs, MK-Delta and MK-Ultra were experimented with radiation, electroshock, psychology, psychiatry, sociology, anthropology, harassment, substances, and what called paramilitary devices and materials. Contacts were made with individuals at prominent hospitals and drug-safe houses under the Bureau of Drug and Abuse Control. Through the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, and federal institutions such as prisons, drugs could be administered to unsuspecting individuals. 139 different drugs, including various amnesia potions, were first tested under laboratory conditions. Then, beginning in 1955, the most promising drugs were given to unwitting subjects in normal social situations through the informal arrangement made between the CIA and the BNDD. The CIA Inspector General's report indicates that this part of mind control program was terminated in 1963, but that at the project test very drugs in an inquiry into improvement of learning ability and memory retention did continue until 1972. Document 32 in the MKUltra file sheds a more direct light on the CIA's involvement in mind control research. The memorandum, for the record, was written by an unidentified intelligence officer. It is reproduced below in its entirety. 17 January 1975, Memorandum for the Record, Subject MKUltra. Number 1. The following represents the best of my unaided recollection regarding the MKUltra program. I was first briefed on it in 1962, and at that time, it was in the process of significant decrease in activity and funding. As Chief, Defense, and Espionage, CDE, I continued to decrease funds significantly each year until the program was phased out in the late 1960s. Number two, MKUltra was a group of projects, most of which dealt with drug or counter-drug research and development. The Director of Central Intelligence, DSI, and the Deputy Director of Plans, DDP, were kept informed on the program via annual briefings by Chief Technical Services Division, or his deputy. Most of the research and developments was externally contracted and dealt with various materials which were perpetrated to have characteristics appealing for their covert or clandestine administration under operational conditions. The objectives were behavioral control, behavioral anomaly production, and countermeasures for a position application and similar substances. Work was performed at U.S. industrial, academic, and governmental research facilities. Funding was often through cutout arrangements. 
Testing was usually done at such time as laboratory work was successfully completed and was often carried out at such fertilities as two blank locations. In all cases that I'm aware of, testing was done using volunteer inmates who were witting and willing of the nature of test program but not ultimately sponsoring organizations. Number three, as the Soviet drug use scare and the amount of significant progress in MKUltra program decreased, the program activities were curtailed significantly as budgetary pressure and alternative priorities dictated. Number four, over my stated objections, the MKUltra files were destroyed by order of the DCI, Mr. Helms, shortly before his departure from office. CI officer by authority of 102702. As for that unidentified intelligence officer's claim that were experiments in all cases that I'm aware of were formed on volunteer and winning subjects, one can only suggest that this man may have not had the need to know about the unwitting subjects. Records of court proceedings indicate that many guinea pigs in federal institutions were not fully informed of the long-range consequences of drug-enhanced behavior modification. One such experiment on human guinea pigs conducted at the California Medical Facility at Vacaville involved the use of the drug enectine. A strong muscle relaxant leaves the victim totally without involuntary muscle control. The body lets loose its waist, breathing stops, and without proper attendance, death can result. Whether or not the subject dies, he experiences the feeling that he is dying. According to the chief Vacaville psychiatrist, Dr. Arthur Nugent, anectine induces sensation of suffocation and drowning. The subject experiences feelings of deep horror and terror as though he were on the brink of death. While in this condition, a self-styled therapist scolds him for his misdeeds and tells him to reform or expect more of the same. Dr. Nugent told the San Francisco Chronicle, even the toughest inmates have come to fear and hate the drug. I don't blame them. I wouldn't have it one treatment myself for the world. Writing about the anecdine therapy program, Jessica Mitford noted that of those giving the drug, nearly all could be characterized as angry young men. Yet some team to have been made even angrier by the experience. For the researchers said to have that of 64 prisoners in the program, nine persons not only did not decrease, but actually exhibited an increase in their overall number of disciplinary infractions. Experimentation with drugs and behavior modification became so widespread in prisons and mental institutions that in the middle and the late 1960s, court dockets became crowded with lawsuits filed on behalf of human guinea pigs who were victims of such research. By 1971, the number of lawsuits had reached such proportions that the Senate Subcommittee on Constitutional Rights began an investigation. Three years later, the Senate Committee on the Judiciary, chaired by Senator Sam Irvin, released a report entitled Individual Rights and the Federal Role in Behavior Modification. It was largely ignored by the press, yet it revealed some interesting information. Two years before the CIA and its subcontractors owned up to their mind dabbling, a large number of behavior modification projects were already underway. 
The report disclosed that 13 projects were run by the Defense Department. The Department of Labor had conducted several experiments. The National Science Foundation conducted a substantial amount of research dealing with understanding human behavior. Even the Veterans Administration participated in psychosurgery experiments, which in many cases were nothing more than an advanced form of a lobotomy. One of the largest supporters of behavior research was the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, and its sub-agency, the National Institute of Mental Health. Subcommittee said that HEW had participated in a very large number of projects dealing with the control and alteration of human behavior. Largest of all the supporters of behavior eradication was the Law Enforcement Assistant Administration, which, under the Department of Justice, funded hundreds of behavior modification experiments. All the above agencies were named in secret CIA documents as though it provided research cover for MKUltra. The subcommittee found that controls and guidelines where they existed were at least loose. The poorly organized and loosely accountable research operations included not only traditional conditioning techniques, but also more advanced modifiers such as chemotherapy, aversive shock therapy, neurosurgery, stress assessment, electric shock, and the well-known form of psychological indoctrination, properly called brainwashing. Another of the documents released to John Marks was one dated February 10, 1951, entitled Defense Against Soviet Mental Interrogation and Espionage Techniques. It began, International treaties or other agreements have never controlled the experimental development and actual use of unconventional methods of warfare, such as devices for subversive activities, fiendish acts of espionage, torture and murder of prisoners of war and physical duress and other unethical persuasive actions in the interrogation of prisoners. According to this document, the Technical Services Division of the CIA contracted with officials of what was then known as the Bureau of Narcotics to have mind-influencing drugs given to unwitting subjects. The CIA felt that the drugs needed to be tested in the normal life settings, so that the full capabilities to produce disabling or discrediting effects of the drugs would be known. With the full approval of Alan Dulles, an arrangement had been made with the Bureau of Narcotics whereby the CIA financed and established safe houses in which the federal narcotics agents could dispense the drugs and record the reactions of those who took them. No CIA men were present when the drugs were administered. The report did not reveal the number of unwitting subjects given drugs, nor the identities of any but Olson, but did acknowledge for the first time the scope of the cryptocracy interested in mind control. The CIA Inspector General Donald F. Chamberlain was stimulated by Olson's death to investigate the above-cited drug program himself. In a summary dated February 5, 1975, he wrote records do not permit a description of such relationships as many have existed between these various activities. It is apparent that there was some sharing of information between these various components in the agency and some overlap in time, but there also are indications of independent approaches to the problem. Naturally, the CIA allows itself to be questioned and examined only by loyal employees. But even the in-house inspector general could not avoid reporting that the CIA had a recurring interest in behavioral drugs for more than 25 years. The earliest record of this interest dated to the post-World War II period, 
when CIA heir to OSS mind control research and perhaps the victim of its own motivationing propaganda thought that the Soviets were using drugs and other behavior influencing techniques. In 1949, Irving Janus of the Rand Corporation wrote, Defense against these mind control actions will depend largely upon knowledge of enemy capabilities. Reports of experimental and actual use of illegitimate interrogations by the Soviets to obtain intelligence and court confessions against the interrogates will indicate clearly the need for medical investigation. The implications referred to above embrace several categories. The behavior of defendants in Soviet courts and those of satellite countries together will the whole pattern of Soviet trial procedure makes it essential for us to consider Soviet use of drugs, hypnotism, hypnonarcosis, electric and drug shock, and possibly the use of ultrasonics. There is documentary evidence to support the belief that the Soviets have been conducting the medical research, have actually used various techniques, and have made provision for large-scale productions of uncommon drugs known for their speech-producing effects. Only a few drugs with which the Soviets were supposed to be experimenting are named. No hard evidence is presented that they were in fact experimenting with such drugs. The report goes on to point that the trial of Joseph Cardinal Mitsinsky, who was accused of collaborating with the enemy, the United States, as an example of the Soviets' use of drugs and obtaining forced confessions in court procedure. Behavioral patterns, rapport, Symptoms of residual effects of treatments and the physical condition of the defendants all indicate the use of drugs. Several documents refer to the memorized testimony and departures from texts indicating forced false confessions. It was later learned that the elicited confessions were false. By Mitskinsky's own admission, they were not induced by drugs or sophisticated techniques of mind control, that they were simply forged, or rather poorly forged at that. Mitzensky's foggy mental state at the trial had resulted from psychological indoctrination, isolation, and interrogation. Generally, these can be regarded as standard police procedures for most countries in the world. The report clearly stated that the use of these drugs did not usually result in amnesia of past interrogations unless the victim's mental faculties had been destroyed by their effects. Thus, even if drugs were used in Mitzensky, by the CIA's own conclusion, he would have remembered getting the drugs and something about the subsequent interrogation sessions. The fact was, he remembered neither. It is surely not a coincidence that the CIA Eyes Only report, which claimed Matinsky was narco-hypnotized, was issued the same year that Edward Hunter, the CIA propaganda specialist, released brainwashing in Red China. Most newspaper reporters would never go to press on that kind of source, less generalized information provided in the CIA report. Yet, are we to believe the cryptocracy had launched a 40-odd year research and development project based on evidence which amounted to the hearsay? Another CIA report uncovered by Marks defense against Soviet medical interrogation revealed the alarming statistics that although susceptibility to narcohypnosis varies from person to person, skilled operators can readily hypnotize about 25% of a given group of average people. It added, at least 80%, however, would be susceptible following the use of certain drugs. 
This second document also discusses the plan of the CIA's organization of a special defense interrogation program. In addition to outlining the use of drugs and hypnosis, the report brought up two other mind-bending possibilities, electroshock and ultrasonic sound. Psychiatrists in many nations have used insulin and electric shock as methods of choice under certain circumstances in their psychiatric work. Electric shock is more rapid than any of the above techniques, drugs or hypnosis. It's instantaneous. It can be applied with or without the recipient's knowledge. Amnesia of interrogation equals that of hypnosis. If the enemy uses electric shock for interrogation purposes and the victim is available after recovery from the shock, highly trained specialists should be able to reveal the past of electric shock by electrographic analysis. The report went on to recommend that groups within the CIA, the armed forces, and the FBI be organized and coordinated to give high-level direction to this project. Civilian capability for solution of some of the problems should be utilized, the report said. Close liaison between the CIA and armed forces services had been established, but is not as effective as it should be. Liaisons with the armed services appear to be inadequate, and they do not seem to be aware of some of the civilian sources of knowledge. Liaisons with the FBI on this subject may be described as cooperative, although somewhat mutually evasive. A satisfactory guiding organization could be set up under high-level direction for the development of an integrated program. If feasible, a committee to accomplish this purpose should be appointed. The report concluded by recommending that a technical committee should include medical intelligence representatives from CIA, Navy, Army, Air Force, and probably the FBI, and an ad hoc government and non-government consultants. From the first days of Project Bluebird, and throughout all ensuing CIA projects, the goal was the same. Find answers to the following questions. Can accurate information be obtained from willing or unwilling individuals? Can agency personnel or persons of interest to this agency be conditioned to prevent any unauthorized source or enemy from obtaining information from them by any known means? Can we obtain control of the future activities, physical and mental, of any individual, willing or unwilling, by application of mind control techniques? Beyond the laboratory and operational research on unwitting subjects, the CIA set up training teams which included polygraph operators, interrogation specialists, hypnotists and others in what was a long-range, all-out effort to develop reliable mind control and counter-mind control techniques. In all, 15 separate research areas were defined by CIA planners. Most of the drug projects came under the operating authority of the U.S. Navy at Bethesda Naval Hospital under the direction of a Dr. Gavowski. The drug project began in 1947 and continued into 1972. The CIA reports define the project as one which sought to, quote, isolate and synthesize pure drugs for use in affecting psychological entry and control of the individual. Also under the Navy's direction was a project headed by Dr. Elson at the University of Indiana called Detection and Deception. This project was aimed at determining the physiological changes which occur when a person is engaged in deception. Mechanical and electrical devices were developed to measure these changes. At the University of Rochester, again under Navy direction, 
but Dr. Wendy investigated motion sickness. The CIA report described that study as one to determine, quote, the effect of drugs on the vestibular function of the ear and the development of side effects which indicate the paucity of psychological entry and control. Besides mind control drugs and techniques, also investigated were tools which might be effective in compromising individuals. One report stated that, in spite of intensive research as of late 1960, quote, no effective knockout pill, true serum, aphrodisiac, or recruitment pill was known to exist. Towards that goal, and under the auspices of U.S. Army Surgeon General's Office, a Dr. Beecher at Harvard University was given 150000 to investigate the development and application of drugs which would aid in the establishment of psychological control. And, under the Air Force guidance, a Dr. Hastings at the University of Minnesota was engaged to research the effects of LSD on animals. His research area, as defined by CIA, also included the use of electric shock and interrogation with particular emphasis placed on the detection of prior use of electric shock and the guarantee amnesia is produced. According to the documents, the investigation of hypnosis as mind control tool was kept under the aegis of CIA. The prime research interest was the, quote, investigative of the possibilities of hypnotic and post-hypnotic control. While MKUltra was the code name for the research and development period of mind control, MK-Delta was the code name for the operational phase during which all of the techniques of mind control were applied to individuals. What followed next were MKUltrans, mind-controlled individuals acting out their mindless role at the behest of their cryptocracy.